Hello, everyone, and thank you for the download. It's Tuesday, January 8th, and this is Episode 5 of the Marty Called Podcast. I'm Tim Grassy, and today I'm joined by my two nondescript co-hosts, Josh and Ben. What's up, guys? Give it a good suck. Hey, hold on. I just got a DM from Bob Iger. Uh, Congratulations (laughs) on making it to Episode 3. You're the longest reigning third wheel on Marty Called. Uh, (laughs) Keep up the good work. I'm listening. (laughs) Wow, that's cool. Not so, that I'm counting, uh, but it's episode four. Well, it's my it's my third episode. <laughs> uh, fun fact: the uh, most recent retweets and responses for Bob Iger include Oprah and NASA. So uh, I'm a pretty big deal right now. Excellent. If your if your weight is going to fluctuate wildly in space, you're in good company. Nope, I'm just solidly fat. That's pretty much what we're <laughs> I'm surprised you'll still do a show with us. I know I, I am a pretty big deal. Uh, for people that have no idea what we're talking about. Um, beloved CEO of Disney, Bob Iger, uh, was recently quoted in a Barron's article, and uh, I took exception to what he said. Um, <laughs> the short of it is, uh, he was listing off reasons why um, he should use intellectual properties, uh, and I'll, par- oh, no, I'll paraphrase. But basically, he said, Avatar is a good example. Cars land, we're building a frozen land in Hong Kong. The interest uh, among the potential art audience is higher. It's not like I'm going to ride some nondescript coaster somewhere that maybe is themed like India or whatever. So this was trying to defend using intellectual properties. And this is relevant to this show because it's largely what we bitch about on here. But uh, I posted to Twitter saying that his nondescript coaster somewhere that's maybe themed like India has a 115 minute wait. And he responded and a Twitter storm ensued of fans kind of supporting me and going up against the Disney company. So uh, I have a I have a question for you. Sure. Have you tried using your magic band since Bob's gone through your Twitter feed yet? <laughs> I have not, but my fast passes are all still there, so we'll see. We'll what see about what your he wields. What about your Ohana reservations? Oh, that's he a knows, good thing. He that. knows where to hit you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's probably why the uh, the noodles are going away there. Switching it over to um, yeah. Uh, Bob, Bob knows how to play the long con. <laughs> He's not going to get banned from Ohana. He's just going to get like extremely overcooked meat in his <laughs> seating. So here's here's the thing with this, and I'm not going to pretend that this was like a great back and forth that I had with, with Bob Iger. It was <laughs> it was literally a drive by message, and I assume that I was not the only one who was uh, was bitching about this line, both internally and outside of the company. Um, a good CEO would look at people that are contradicting him and engage engage with the, with the fans. He's kind of doing that, but not really. If there was an actual back and forth, but I suspect this. Like, I'm not going to sink down to your level. I just need to clarify that uh, I wasn't um, denigrating an actual attraction that we have in our parks because I, as speaking as Bob Iger, didn't realize that the attraction was themed around India. Um, I suspect that he was trying to throw some shade over like a Six Flags or something like that and didn't think of his own properties in the park. And uh, as a result... He got called out on it, and Barons went and changed the language in the article, which is a little bit, a uh, little bit questionable. But that's yeah, neither well, here nor there. I think it's safe to say that 2018 slash 2019 is not the pinnacle for journalistic integrity in America. So not so much. I, I don't suspect anyone would have a hard time believing that uh, you know just revisionist history is the way we do things now. Uh, not that this is a defense. They shortened the quote. They didn't change the quote um, to well, eliminate the portion about India. So they cut if, I cut, if I cut every word out of a sentence that you said, except for the word suck and dick, I haven't <laughs> added anything to it, but I've probably changed the meaning significantly. So, well, actually in your case, not the uh, motivation of this show wasn't to talk entirely about how I'm Twitter famous. 
but uh, perhaps we can use that as a springboard to what is our normal topic of ire and that is those attractions based on intellectual properties do you guys want to start it off right with our homework assignment or do you want to bitch about epcot in general talk about uh the long lost buzzy animatronic where do you want to kick it off so much time buckle up people (laughs) i feel like we've got a marathon on our hands here yep well i think that since we had this homework assigned to us back in november ish that we should probably tackle that first and then let that be a segue into our general uh frustrations so a um, refresher for those people paying attention or not paying attention. Um, our discussion in episode three was about Epcot and our realization that intellectual properties are very much going to be a part of Epcot's future. So it, we tasked each other to come up with an idea that used an existing Disney property uh, for a an attraction that would work in Epcot. So, uh, yeah. Josh, I may have even cut you off there if you want to start it off. Sure. Well, I, I like the idea that I'm going first. That way, on the off chance that we all pick the same thing, everyone will assume that you copied off of me. Right. Makes uh, sense. So, so I have a strategic <laughs> advantage here. I um, copy most of my homework going through school anyway, so it'd be uh, par for the course. Excellent. <laughs> excellent. So anyway, um, I'll admit that I want to start with a little bit of backstory. But when, when Tim first came up with the idea of this quote-unquote homework assignment, I'll admit that I, was, I wasn't really thrilled about it because, uh, as Tim sort of alluded to, the injection of IP into Epcot in particular is not something that I've been a fan of historically. Um, but as many things go in life, as I really sat down and started to think about it and trying to put an honest effort into uh, completing the assignment, I realized that there was some value in it that I didn't initially appreciate because it forced me to actually think about why I am generally unhappy with the injection of IP into Epcot. You're welcome. And, but yes, thank you. And uh, what I came up with is something that I know we've all said, but for some, uh, for some reason, thinking about it in this context made it a little more clear in my own mind, which is it's not that IP in and of itself is a problem. In fact, um, I've commented previously that IP is sort of a poor choice of terminology, quite frankly, because a lot of the original Magic Kingdom attractions even, or Disneyland attractions, were IP-based, and that they were Cinderella or uh, Snow White or what have you. The, the issue, I think... Uh, is really not so much that movie-based characters and lands are being injected into the parks. It's that the process of injecting them has been very non-organic or forced or shoehorned or whatever verb you want to go with. It dilutes the area. Exactly. It's just not a fit. So the approach that I took to, to doing my homework here was to approach it in two parts. And the first thing that I tried to start with was instead of saying, where can I inject a character into Epcot? I asked the question, what story can I tell in Epcot? And I tried to think back to the way original 1982 to 1990 Epcot Center, particularly Future World, worked. And my take on it was that what the Imagineers really tried to do was take technology that was new at the time, but existent, and imagine how if that rare, unique, cutting-edge technology that existed in a lab would change life for humanity if it became ubiquitous and widespread throughout the world. That, to me, uh, was sort of the, the gist of what Future World is about. Maybe you could call it near-field futurism, You know what, what we can expect to see in the next 20 to 30 years based on technology that we know works, at least in principle, because it's been demonstrated on a small scale. So can I, I tried to- Can I challenge that for a little bit? Sure. Before- so I, I agree with the premise. However, I don't know that it was always grounded in reality. So I think a lot of Epcot Center was kind of problem solving. 
It was problem solving communication, problem solving agriculture, et cetera. Um, but then you look at like problem solving transportation and there was a little bit more whimsy there. There was a little bit more that wasn't really rooted in science, um, but still I, it's problem solving. I, I don't disagree with you. And, and I think that any lens through which you try to understand the original iteration of Future World is going to be met with a, a myriad of exceptions that, that don't sure. follow that. So I'm definitely not challenging what you said. But what I was okay. more trying to do is latch on to what the spirit of it was. Okay. Uh, and, and maybe it would be more accurate to say what a spirit of it was, because I think you're right. I think I think that um, if you look at Horizons, for example, probably the, the quintessential future world attraction, um, mm -hmm. you know, Alpha Centauri, the idea of a space colony, that, that was not really rooted in technology that existed at the time. It was much more far out. Uh, and I don't mean that in the 70 sense, but, you know, on a <laughs> on a time scale, looking at it, you know, temporally, that was much more in the future than, say, the descent scenes in Spaceship Earth were that envisioned a boyfriend and a girlfriend talking over a great different distance with a visual, you know, video based chat. Um, so so I think you're right. But but anyway, the approach I took was trying to take uh, a technological revolution that was that was at least theoretically about to happen. And trying to tell that story in a way that would be relatable to people and not interesting purely for the sake of technology, but interesting because of the impact that it might have on mankind. So that, that was the story that I wanted to tell. And, and I'll admit right up front, I, I'm not an artist. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not a fiction writer or anything like that. But I've certainly listened to enough of them and been fascinated by enough of them and read about them enough to know that it seems that it's a pretty safe bet to say that if you want to start, um, at a solid footing, it's with the story itself. In other words, you don't want to focus on the medium that you're going to tell the story in or or anything like that. You want to focus on the story itself. Because if the story is compelling, then all of the ingredients that go into it will tend to to make it work. Whether whereas if you decide I'm going to tell a story with lasers and you're all about using lasers or whatever, you know we discussed those are called pew pews. Yes, pew pews. Pew pew. You know that that's the wrong place to start. You want to start with the story and then let the medium support that and not the other way around. Right. So um, that was sort of step one of my analysis. And step two of my thought process was, now that I have the story I want to tell, what character that's in Disney's existing catalog uh, would lend itself to telling that story the best? And, and I think it's worth pausing for a second to point out that I think at the core of this, of the order in which I'm asking these questions, really harkens back to why I've been frustrated by IP injection into the parks in the last five to 10 years, because it seems to me that Disney has frequently done it in the opposite way, which is to say Absolutely. when Frozen became a box office smash, the question was not what story can we tell? And then they landed on the fact that the characters from Frozen could tell that story effectively. The plot process they clearly engaged in was that they wanted to inject Frozen into the parks. And then they yep. came up with a story they could tell in order to make that work, which is you know, the winter hoose and all of that. And the, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's equivalent to what I, you sometimes hear called a backronym, which mm -hmm. is like, it's an acronym that it wasn't really an acronym because they came up with it and then they decided what it stood for. Like, that's what I see with a lot of this forced IP injection is we want these particular characters in the park because what they, we know that they have a great financial return and we'll figure out later how to actually make the story make sense. Yep. So I, I wanted to discuss this in episode one. They're basically backing into the answer that they want. Is what exactly doing. exactly they're starting with the IP as opposed to starting with the themed part. Exactly. Or so so to circle around, I I tried to do the opposite, and, and it, the homework assignment for me started to become a lot more interesting when I at least made an earnest attempt 
to put IP into the parks in a way that actually made sense where most people wouldn't say that it was forced. So now, with, with all of that out of the way, let me tell you what I can. The, to me, the most interesting nascent technology that is just starting to blossom that I think lends itself well to future world is artificial intelligence. And so that was the story I wanted to tell. What is it? What does it really mean? It's a difficult sort of thing. It's, it's, it's a little bit heady in the sense that I think most people have heard of it. Yet if you went up to, uh, you know, a hundred people and said, define what it actually is, I think most of them would struggle. I could say that I struggle in the fact, despite the fact that I'm a computer geek. Um, so that was the story I wanted to tell. And the, the IP that exists that I think would be useful to tell it was Wreck-It Ralph. Now, let me try and justify first in the abstract sense why I chose this combination of story and IP, and then I'll get into slightly more specifics as to what I envision as being a potential attraction they could actually take action on. Just if for the you, record, if Derek you say you're going to, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, if you say put candy, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I can't stop laughing off of uh, Derek's comment. I'll let you take over, Tim. <laughs> if this goes into World Showcase, I'm leaving the show. <laughs> <laughs> this is not going into World Showcase. I, I still find that to be one of the most indefensible uh, theories that I've ever heard on a podcast. But, but nonetheless, uh, Derek may take uh, Derek may take some solace in the fact that at least I'm putting that IP in the park somewhere. Um, but in any event, let's look at Wreck-It Ralph, all right? And, and uh, let's sort of dissect it in a somewhat pedantic way, which I assure you is a real word. Um, <laughs> nope. It was interesting because it took the abstract concept of video game characters, which they're inanimate, right? They're not alive. They don't think. They're not real. They don't exist in three dimensions, yet we all sort of relate to them in some way. So there's a nostalgic connection there. But the brilliance of Wreck-It Ralph was that it was very anthropomorphic and that it imputed human characteristics that we all know and appreciate just by virtue of being people that have lived a life. And it thrust them onto these characters that we know. And the effect of that was that we were able to appreciate these characters in a new way. And it occurs to me that artificial uh, intelligence is really the next step after deterministic computing, right? Pac-Man goes left or right in a given game because that's how he was programmed to do it. And, and in the 80s, even that would be a difficult concept for people to understand because computer science was a relatively new discipline at that time. Whereas now mankind is facing a world in which, at least in theory, computers can now write their own code or do things that exceed uh, the decision tree that was placed there by their initial programmers. And that, that is a very mind-bending, hard-to-grasp concept. And it seems to me that hard-to-grasp, intellectual, intangible concepts are the perfect sorts of things to try and explain in the context of a theme park attraction because you can immerse people in them and show them what's actually going on in a way that might make connection to them. I mean, at, at the end of the day, most learning happens by relating things that people do understand to new concepts that people don't yet understand. So this is essentially a forum in which you can do that in a way that is both entertaining and interesting. It relates to IP that people already exist and care about, and it has the potential to expand people's knowledge and thinking into ways that will be actually useful in the future. Um, so it's utilizing that familiarity to teach something that's, I guess, tangentially related to the characters, if that makes sense? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Okay. Um, from, from, a, from the perspective of human impact, I would point out that when I was high school aged, um, let's call it 20 years ago, 
if I were to go up to someone and say, hey, I'm going to go buy something using my computer. I'm going to put my credit card number into a computer that's connected somehow to some network. People literally, only 20 years ago, which if you're really young, that seems like a long time. If you're over the age of 40, it seems like five minutes ago. People would look at you like you were crazy. They would mm-hmm. literally say, you're going to do what? And now today, you know, if you want people to think you're crazy, tell them that you're going to order, uh, open up a brick and mortar store somewhere as opposed <laughs> to selling your merchandise online. So there's been a tremendous transformation in society as to how commerce is viewed over a very short period of time. And, and I have a sneaking sp- suspicion that when you start telling people that computers are going to start thinking for themselves to people that are my age, that there's going to be another sort of social barrier to break through uh, in order for society as a whole to accept that. So I, I think that this could be somewhat of a gateway and contribute to that is, uh, you know, by making it something that's accessible and not threatening. Does that make sense? It does. And I think it, it's kind of funny because as you're uh, suggesting um, 20 years ago, or 20 years ago, it would be seen as crazy as putting your credit card. Um, I'm just facing conversations with my father today where it's you know very similar behavior as if it was 20 years ago um <laughs> but to the to the point about go, going back to wreck it ralph um wreck it ralph taking video game characters and bringing them to life is something that disney uh and more specifically pixar has done over the last 15 years in some way shape or form. there's um, there's a uh an animation and really all it is is a spreadsheet so that's why i like it but it basically, uh, it, it just lists all of the Pixar movies. And I'm going to lump Wreck-It Ralph in there only because John Lasseter was a, at least tied to the original one, um, where it's assigning emotions to things. So Toy Story is, what if toys had emotions? Wreck-It Ralph is, what if video game characters had emotions? And then you yep. get, what if cars had emotions? What if planes had emotions, et cetera? Right. Um, and all that is, is personifying things and making it so that we can relate to them. And that's exactly what Josh was saying, that finding a way to make that connection to something that is relatable. And the characters in Wreck-It Ralph have emotions. We bonded with those characters in the movie. And that's the part that you're focusing on, I assume, in order to tell a different story with those characters. Uh, not only that, but I, I think that I think that you really set me up here to, to drive home the, the, the thesis or the thrust of what I'm driving for here, which is that AI at its heart is essentially these previously inanimate things, developing things that humans might describe as being emotions. Right. So if Wreck-It Ralph 1 is imagining that video game characters had emotions and this attraction is the effect of AI, which is that they essentially behave as if they do have emotions, then you have a transition there that is very organic. And again, the opposite of what I've rallied against for probably the last 10 years, which is this, this shoehorning of IP where it doesn't belong. Um, and I think if us three idiots can come up with even one or two or three ideas that actually do organically fit... Um, then that would suggest to me that that uh, perhaps Imagineering isn't doing the best job of actually finding how to get this stuff into the parks. Or perhaps the mandate is coming for specific IPs and where they're going, and Agreed. then it's on the Imagineering to, uh, to place it, which is also yeah. very likely. I, I mean, I, I and I'm sure you're right. I mean, I think that the shape of the whole is what management is worried about. And, you know, if it's square, they go to Imagineering and say, here's your round peg, you figure out how to get it in there. Yeah. And that's, that's, I have to imagine is a very exasperating and frustrating experience for Imagineer because I know just from the artists that I am friends with and talk to that, that they do care about the story and they are approaching it from a pure point of view, perhaps without any regard for business. 
Uh, and meanwhile, management is approaching it from a standpoint that's purely focused on business with perhaps very little respect or regard for, for the story. So um, uh, all we can hope for as fans is that the middle ground that they ultimately meet, uh, you know, meet on uh, is something that's satisfactory to everybody. But when you go back and you look at the visionaries like the Steve Jobs and the Walt Disney's of the world, they tend to pretty unanimously unanimously believe that if you do a good job of producing the product, that the business issues sort of take care of themselves. And then almost, you know, you know, by virtue of the fact that they're human, they they die and those organizations get taken over by people who are a little perhaps perhaps a little less inspired. Um, and it seems like there's just an inevitable uh, gravitation toward the whole of worrying about the business interests first. Uh, I, I think that's kind of where we're at now. I fear that there has been under um, this current leadership group because there has been such a push for intellectual property-based additions that that mindset is now permeating the halls of 1401 Flower Street where, all right, people are recognizing that these original concepts are no longer getting the push and people want to get a project pushed through. So they're now thinking the way that the executives want them to think. So they're saying, all right, how can I get uh, the next movie into the park? We've got you know, the Nutcracker in the Four Realms. I'm sure there's people working on an attraction for that movie that, you know, that bombed. And they probably spent, you know, months and months trying to work on something that would work somewhere in the parks. And that's never going to see the light of the light of day. And that's kind of how they're having to work, where they're continuing to work backwards, as Josh kind of outlined, where they're working with the intellectual property um, and seeing, uh, all right, let's come up with the attraction and then force it in for may or may not belong. Um, right. And that's that's what I fear is happening, but um, we don't know that definitively. We can only speculate on that. But uh, I don't want it to uh, go ahead. I was gonna say it is amazing if that is the mindset. How long it takes to get these attractions actually built and put into parks, though? I mean, oh yeah, you know how long these films are in production, how long they've gone along. Uh, they, I mean, outside of the live action bombs that have come out recently, most of the animated stuff they they know when they have a hit on their hands. Yet. Uh, it takes years after these things do become a hit for them to actually even start thinking about, I mean, we're getting a Ratatouille right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and considering that the management, they know uh, what they're looking for. You know, the Imagineers know what the management's looking for. It, it's still shocking to me uh, how slow the process goes to see these things implemented into the parks. Yeah. That's something where I think they're looking at universal too, and how quickly. Um, I was I was going to say, Tim sent me a quote a couple of weeks ago from, uh, it was the, the CEO or the COO of a regional theme park that had built a roller coaster. It was, and, uh, it was Tim Burkhart and he was VP of operations at Six Flags. Okay. Wh- why don't you tell the story instead of me hacking it up? <laughs> um, so it was a, a guy named Tim Burkhart, as I said, VP of operations at one of the Six Flags parks. Excuse me. And he was talking about a coaster that they had there called Viper. And he was in the park one day and Michael Eisner comes up to him or not comes up to him, but uh, he gets notified by like an internal communication that Michael Eisner's there and wants to speak. with. Him. And so, it's, all right, I'm, I'm busy, but wait, really? Michael Eisner? So he goes and talks to him. And Michael Eisner at the time was CEO. And he wanted to see how quickly they could get things up and out of the ground. He asked him on this particular roller coaster, Viper. Uh, how long it took. And he said, 88 days. Took him 88 days, not from like a fabrication standpoint, wasn't counting that, but when everything was on site for them to build it into from starting the site prep to opening it, it was 88 days. 
And Michael Eisner's response was it would take Disney that long to decide what color to paint it. <laughs> and it, it really is kind of true. You do have the vice, the halls of vice presidents over in Imagineering and Disney corporate that slow these things down. Um, that's something that I do think Iger and Chapek have tried to, to push and, and minimize, but uh, I, I don't, I can't see them being successful with the amount of money that they're still spending. Um, uh, you know, my, my wife has a PhD in strategic management, and one of the things that she studies uh, extensively is the, and this so, seems sort of hard to get your head around, but the role of hubris and ego in corporate decision-making. And just based on my conversations with her and a little bit that I know about the world, you know, when companies get big, they have more management. Yeah. And when you, and management, we talk about management as though it's this abstract thing, but it's 100% built out of something that we all know, people. And when you take people that are successful and, and let, let's just, you know, get down to brass tacks. If you are an upper, you know, upper middle to top management team level person in the Walt Disney company, you've probably been successful your whole life. That, mm-hmm. That's really how you get a job like this. You're probably not uh, an unemployed loser uh, who gets hired at the age of 50 into that role. You know, you've probably were successful in high school, successful in college, successful in grad school, moved quickly up to the company. I mean, these are people that are used to getting their way. They're used to the people around them telling them they're smart and that their ideas are correct. And and that's great. And they probably are smart. But the problem is when you start putting tens of them in a room together and they're all convinced that they're the smartest person in the room, you end up with this sort of inevitable logjam of ideas where none of them want to concede because they're all convinced that their idea is the one that needs to carry the day. Yep. So it's you could call it the blessing of success, I guess. But um, it certainly is a situation where uh, organizations like Universal, which is not, you know, it sounds almost ridiculous. They're not a small player by any stretch, but I think they they are smaller enough compared to Disney that they don't have quite as many layers of bureaucratic nonsense to where they can really kick ass and take names um, just because they can move much more quickly and be much more agile uh, than a company that's got 98 layers of management with, you know, 100 layers within each layer. Um so I think to some degree, Disney's a victim of his own success by virtue of how large of an organization it is. Universal Creative is a much, much smaller department than Disney Imagineering. I mean, <laughs> it, it, to put it in perspective, and there's slight hyperbole here, but like the members of Universal Creative could live comfortably in my house, whereas the members of Disney Imagineering could not all live comfortably in my town. Like it's, it's, it's that level of <laughs> that's science. a huge difference. I mean, that's a huge difference. Um, and it's, it's not quite that extreme, but it's fairly extreme. I mean, it's probably a thousandfold the, uh, the difference uh, yeah. be- between them. So and I, you know, it's, I think that it's much easier. I, I said just from my experience in management, it is much easier to increase the size of an organization than it is to decrease it. Uh, because quite frankly, uh, it's easier to hire people than it is to fire them. And what Disney probably could use is a leaning out. Um, but very rarely do you ever see that. I just got the corporate shivers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to say, you don't, you don't work where I work. <laughs> uh, let, let me rephrase it. Perhaps I'll, I'll try and make it a little more eloquent, although I don't know if I'll succeed. Companies grow because they can, but they only shrink because they have to. And, and Disney's not in a situation where they're being forced to be more lean. So right. they, so they won't become more lean, and except they they're cutting continue. other things that aren't people. Certainly, they're cutting it on the on the consumer side rather yeah. than on the uh, you know on the on the supply side rather than on the demand side. 
Yeah. That may not be a correct, but what are we going to do? Custodial workers are overrated anyway. (laughs) Not needed. Not needed. Um, So water, you don't need to clean it. To to drill back to our to our topic, let me tell you how I sort of envision the interaction and where I would put it. You're gutting Uh, spaceship Earth. I am not gutting (laughs) spaceship Earth. Um, The place that I would put this is the imagination pavilion, and there's a few reasons for that, and I'll in no particular order. The first is that it's just hurting to begin with. Um, it's a problematic attraction. There's room for expansion in the actual building. Um, I don't think it's particularly beloved amongst, uh, certainly amongst hardcore Epcot fans. It's sort of hated in its current iteration, or at least people feel indifferent to it because it's basically a, you know, just a skeleton of its former self. This kind of goes to Disney's strategy. I'll, I'll let you get back, but this goes to their strategy. Collecting, replacing them is less objectionable. And that's kind of what they've done with imagination. Uh, more recent example was Studio Backlot Tour, where they just either cut it down, trimmed it, or just ignored it. Uh, something that they hated, and then you know people forget about the original, and they can easier, easy, more easily replace it. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's some truth to that. I mean, I don't feel like people have forgotten about the original that experienced it, but certainly there's going to be less objection to people. The, the less people care about it now, obviously, the less objection they'll yeah. throw if you if you attempt to change it. So we're not, and, and Ben's joke goes to that point, we're not gutting Spaceship Earth here. We're talking about a pavilion that people are probably indifferent about on average. Um, yeah. But the second part is because I think it does have a lot to do with imagination um, in the concrete sense because it's imagining what the capabilities of computer science might be in 10, 20, and 30 years. And in the more abstract sense, because to some degree, what we are doing when we talk about artificial intelligence is expanding a deterministic system that has no flexibility whatsoever uh, and expanding it into a system that can do things that m- people might describe as creative, right? They're acting outside of what they are programmatically designed to do. So uh, I think it fits there. Um, I- I'm a hardcore Omnimover fan, so I would love to see that, at least for the first part of the ride. And um I kind of envisioned the first part of the ride being the traditional Omnimover on a track where the track represents both the path that the ride is going to take and also the path and code that is programmed. It, you can't deviate from it. And the second part of the ride, I would make the actual point in time at which Skynet goes live, so to speak, where you have <laughs> artificial intelligence doing things that are outside of their original code path. And then I would have the ride convert into basically the SeaWorld ride where it's a trackless ride system and perhaps... (laughs) Poor example of that system, but yes. (laughs) Well, yeah. Hey, implementation and ideas are two different things. Trust me. (laughs) Cue the penguins. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, um, you know, that would be my ideas there is that the first part of the ride represents both physically and, uh, you know, symbolically code that is deterministic. And the second part represents the freedom that exists when uh, those constraints are lifted. And then my image works finale would be, uh, and this is where I think I could actually get this, I would have some chance of getting this idea greenlit, is I would take the AI and I would expand it into the My Magic Plus so that the actual Disney experience could be shaped by some artificial intelligence acting on the conduct of guests, what people like, what their preferences are, what the load in the relative parks are. So you could hopefully achieve some interests that are that are. Uh, similar for guests and management. Um, it seems to me that my Magic Plus, at least one design objective was to do a better job of balancing uh, 
guests throughout the four parks because that's obviously a huge problem. You don't want to have four right. parks and have one that's at capacity and one that's empty. That's not a good use of your resources. <laughs> um, but and I think that what Disney succeeded in doing was getting a system that provided them with metrics to show that they had that problem. But I don't think it did anything to actually shape guest behavior to address that problem. So perhaps this it could be it was some sort of notification. Yes, it could have to be pushed to your phone, for example. To possibly direct them with some sort of incentive. Maybe one day. <laughs> one day. <laughs> but people would literally have to carry around some sort of computing device on their pocket at all time and then look at it. I don't see it. Be, it'll never work. That sounds like a good, that's a good upcharge uh, possibility right there. So in any event, that's the gist of my idea. And I, and I admit it, it's the kernel of idea. It's certainly not, uh, you couldn't go build this thing right now based on what I said, but it's, uh, it's, it's a step one of 20. Uh, the 30 minute monologue ahead of it, notwithstanding, that's a pretty darn good elevator pitch in the sense that boil it down to, all right, you've got a video game character that I, that I just said is constrained on a certain path within the construct of the game. And then it is allowed free reign after that in the construct of the movie and bringing those to the educational aspect of it, um, the evolution of an AI, that sort of thing. Uh, I think it's a great idea and a great use of two existing ride concepts. Um, and, and the reality, just thinking practically how it would be done, you'd probably have a fake ride track. Uh, yes. And it'd be yeah. truly a trackless ride the entire way. Yeah. But um, I literally had the exact same idea because that moment where the thing breaks off the track, that is your sort of crescendo of the ride, which is that, oh my gosh, we were convinced that this thing was constrained and now it's not like that's, that's right. the whole point. Now I'd like to see, and this is kind of a thought that similar, not, not with the same AI backdrop. I think that's a, a great angle to take on this. Um, but I, that's something where I think, you know, you could redo an original imagination with that variant. I wouldn't be surprised if Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway has something similar where you I, think the ride system is one thing and it breaks off. So I, was I love say, hybrid I, I, totally, idea. I, I was absolutely on the, we're definitely on the same frequency tonight because as I was thinking about this, the, the runaway ride, mine, uh, the, the Mickey Mouse, tr whatever that thing is called, that's going to the <laughs> movie ride building. That, that was my exact thought was that it would be, it's just a cool idea from a storytelling yeah. perspective, because if people get on a ride, you know, and it, I don't know what the longevity of it is. It's one of those things where the first time you ride it, if you haven't had it spoiled, for sure. you, it would be awesome. And it could be sort of ruined for that after that. But it would be a great moment. I mean, and even it's a power, if power moment, and that's still good. Yep. Yep. That's that's exactly right. So I, I definitely think there's there's some legs there in terms of the actual uh, concept. No, I love it. I love it. Yeah, well it's done. all right. <laughs> did you take your idea were you gonna go uh wreck it ralph as well uh no i was thinking uh brother bear the sing-along in canada <laughs> <laughs> now is that gonna be with or without martin short company perhaps harmonizing with them he's canadian so he's gotta be in it okay got it, got it. <laughs> do all canadians have alanis morissette is she in it don't knock alanis morissette i think she actually is one of the images that show up showing up is she in a locker? I don't know. Um, no, I, I, th I think that's a, uh, a great idea. And if they came in and said, all right, we're pitching a Wreck-It Ralph ride for Imagination Pavilion tomorrow, and they just said it like that, we'd be pretty pissed off, right? Yep. 
Now, if they came in and framed it with a little bit level of detail, there'd probably be some skepticism. But we'd all right, is this going to be replacing Figment? What's the end game here? There, there'd be some level of skepticism there. I think the problem with a pitch like that to fans is the initial sell of something like that is a bit of a stretch. But when you see the final story treatment, if you're willing to put aside your apprehension in the two to three years of development, it works. And that's the type of thing that I think is going to be best case scenario for Epcot's future, where they take these existing intellectual properties and find angles, find stories that actually work and have them go back to that inspirational thing. Um, Epcot Center inspired a lot of problem solving. You you talked about this uh, earlier, and we still have problems today that I don't know what the necessary character or movie connection could be, but they've tried it in the past. Things like uh, uh, global warming. They've had Lion King characters talk about uh, pollution and things like that. All right, that's more of like a, a lecture type attraction, but uh, you can look at problems in the world or developing things that aren't necessarily problems like AI, although the uh, basis of any sci-fi movie would say that it's a problem, um, and say, all right, how do we frame these in a way that is entertaining and people aren't necessarily recognizing that they're learning something as well? If you want to be the guy that kills Sigma, have at it. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) And Tim, I think what you said really is is sort of along the lines of what I said initially, which is that if, if the story is good, People will like it, it mm-hmm. you know, but if, if it's all about the character and finding a story for them instead of finding the story and then picking the right character, uh, that makes all the difference in the world, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're like the opposite Terminator 2 3D where AI can be good, not where you're going to sit there and try to get murdered for 30 minutes inside of a <laughs> uh, theater. Exactly. I like it. I like it. So most, uh, most things throughout history that can be used for good can also be used for evil. So <laughs> I, I'm pretty confident that AI will be in that boat as well. So, Josh, you hit on something here. Um, the attractions of Epcot Center were so often springboards for the inspirational components that came later in post shows. Um, I kind of feel that My Magic Plus has pushed the scheduling aspect as a uh, of you know your day as a priority over enjoying some of those post shows, and perhaps it's a function of them not being regularly updated, but. Um, Ben, you're probably the better person to ask this because you've been there with kids. Um, do, you, do your kids like playing in the post shows of the various Epcot attractions or not? Yeah, they love it. Uh, and as dumb as the current uh, iteration of Imageworks is, and I try mm-hmm. to tell them you can do more stuff on your phones than at those <laughs> dumb computers, they want to stop every time. Same with Test Track. Uh, they want to race the cars around. I mean, yeah, they're, they're very much into the post show scenes as much as I remember being on par- uh, into them when I was their age. Good. Okay. So that's, that's good to hear. I mean, I know that now when I'm at a Disney park, I'm concerned about when's my next fast pass window, when's my dining. And those diversion type experiences are, are secondary to, uh, uh to the enjoyment of the day. But ultimately yeah. if there's a return to those things, and I think a push away from some of that scheduling, perhaps even just in a park like Epcot, if they can find a way to separate that, to allow for people to experience some of those post-show things, that might be a, be- a way to, uh, uh, to, to better enjoy the aspects of it that aren't necessarily the rides, but still 
have the post-show and pre-show experiences be a little more tied towards Epcot Center and yeah. the, the educational yep. interaction. And, and those, those post-shows really serve a dual purpose. I mean, they can be an end cap on the story of the attraction, sure. obviously. But from a more operational perspective, they're shock absorbers. They, the more people you can have tied up in doing that, the less people you have in line for the next attraction, the less people that you have, uh, you know, clogging the, you know, the walkways throughout the park. And I, I do think that that's one thing that Disney's going to have to. They're probably the best in the world at it right now, but they need to get better at it, which is controlling. I think what Disney really is trying to do, if you look at My Magic Plus, if you look at the the post-show stuff, they're trying to control what guests do without them feeling like they're being controlled. I mean, that really is the ultimate solution, right? They they want you to spend. If if, if 50,000 people or 100,000 people spend an extra five or 10 minutes each at a post-show, the capacity of that frees up without the park, throughout the park over a year is tremendous. Um, so if they can have that happen naturally, that's a great thing which is what happens when people are intrigued and entertained in a post-show. When, when it's forced on them, like through My Magic Plus, they might get some of the same benefits from it in terms of uh, guest you know, traffic, but they're not getting the benefit from it in terms of guest satisfaction. So I, I think that what Disney's approach to guest management needs to evolve into is a situation in which um, you know, they get the best of both worlds, and they're definitely not there yet. Because My Magic Plus, from everyone I've talked to, I mean, people that... You know, friends I have here in Indiana who I would never admit that I do these podcasts to, who just <laughs> go to Disney, you know, once or twice a year. Um, they come to me without knowing how I have any interest in the parks and they complain about my Magic Plus. So yeah. it seems to me that it, it's a pretty abject failure in terms of guest satisfaction overall. So the old experiences in Epcot and not even talking about the the rides themselves, but the pavilion experience take world uh, uh world of motion for the most part these things had great capacity you'd go in you wouldn't have much of a wait for the ride itself but you'd still probably spend 45 minutes to an hour between the the longer ride and the post show and mm -hmm. that wasn't an experience that was spent largely in line whereas now you may still spend that amount of time in a particular pavilion but a lot more of it is in line and even if there's things entertaining you in line it's a little bit different so perhaps the the switch is what they're doing over at Dumbo now, where if you want to wait for test track, great, wait in the post show area. You get a uh, you get a magic feather that calls your uh, calls your vehicle up to the um, to the design studio, and meanwhile you're playing in the post show, which is now the new queue. Perhaps that's the way to do it. They flip it backwards, and right. your post shows become their pre shows, and that's how you spend an hour in there. You just kind of change the thinking of it. And that's something Universal's kind of doing as well over yeah, the, in uh, Fallon. Jimmy yeah, Fallon. The, yeah. I mean, that's an example. I mean, the fact I haven't ridden the attraction, I've heard it's pretty terrible. <laughs> but but the reviews of the queue are certainly positive. Um, yeah. And it's probably the first example in my involvement in the theme park community where uh, maybe Hong Kong accepted where the where the queue got better reviews than the ride. Yeah. Um, but it it's it's interesting and it, it makes me wonder if in 20 years is that sort of the model that all of these things move toward i'm a huge tonight show fan uh historically ever since i was a little kid and it's one of the only attractions it might be the only attraction where i actually get disappointed when my color gets called uh <laughs> too fast i want to be in there for a few of the experiences the shows i want to be able to walk through and see the exhibits uh the johnny carson uh cabinets things like that just going through uh 
and taking my time in there. And unfortunately, the attraction is not as popular as I probably hope. So you don't get to spend as much time in there uh, waiting to go on the ride. But yeah, the way they laid that out and the way they made that part of the overall experience and uh, it definitely doesn't make it feel like you're waiting in line. I think it's something that Disney could, uh, you know, find better use for uh, some of their post shows like Tim, Tim mentioned. That's a great idea. The degree to which people feel as though they have to rush to the next attraction because the line is long means they're that much less likely to spend any time in the post-show of the attraction. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a feedback cycle there that, that has to be broken. Absolutely. Absolutely. So <laughs> I don't think we intended to have as much of a discussion on other areas of Epcot when this is generally a homework assignment show. So why don't we move over to, uh, to Ben's idea? Ben, what did you come up with for, uh, for your homework assignment? I feel like the, uh, you know, when the smartest kid in the class would get up to present their project and then the person that had to follow that who <laughs> wrote, wrote like one paragraph, uh, that's me. Uh, no, I, I'm sitting along this on the same lines of what you guys were discussing and talking about on there. But the, uh, the spin that I kind of took that we had, you know, we've lost so much of classic Epcot. How could I come up with a, something that maybe kept something, some of that, uh, the old in mixed in with the new. And, you know, when it comes to the IP stuff, the stuff that I just don't like is when they just drop an IP attraction in and all it is, is retelling the movie. We've yeah. seen the movie. We've seen it. We've heard the songs. Yep. It's what, it's what frozen suffers from, uh, you know, as much as I like some of the technology in that attraction, it's just, you know, it's frozen. Uh, we, we, we hum along to a few of the songs and end of the day, it checks done. the frozen check boxes. You get yep. When you want to build a snowman, you get let it go. You get to see the characters. It satisfies. Yep. It's basically what Tim frequently refers to as the book report. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Uh, so, my thought was like, what IP could I put into the park yet tell an original story with, and maybe keep a classic piece of uh, Epcot in there? So, uh, I'm gonna bump. Josh's Wreck-It Ralph idea from imagination and take over <laughs> imagination myself. Okay. Uh, which is probably, <laughs> uh, and you know, the, 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 the talk has been out there for years of, you know, inside out going into the imagination pavilion, which I like the idea. I, I gotta be honest with you. I like it, but the last thing I want is just a retelling of the movie, uh, you know, getting rid of figment, getting rid of everything in there and retelling the movie. So my thought actually comes off of the bone, the, the credit scene from inside out where, uh, you know, we were going inside the head of different characters throughout the world, uh, as well as animals, dogs, cats, things like that. I and mean, every time you went inside that character's head, the, uh, emotions looked like that person. Uh, they all had the same hairstyle. Uh, one was a clown. So you went inside and all the uh, emotions inside the head were all dressed as clowns. Things like that. So my thought is, what if Figment was having uh, his imagination was getting the best of him? And you go inside the head of Figment and inside there you you see Figment characters that have that same that look like him, except they're just the colors of the different emotions that we see in, inside out. And in a way, is there a way that we retell the story of like how emotions are uh, you, you go through all the, 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 the 
trying to figure out how much. I, this was so much easier when I uh, had it all in my head before I had to tell you guys. It always is when the microphone comes on. At least fifty IQ points. That's just the way she rolls. The, the the thought essentially though is Figment has trouble with his imagination getting away from him. We're inside there and we see all the different emotions that look like Figment. Those different colors. They're all hectic, going crazy. Uh, but then you have the characters from the movie Inside Out. You have joy. You have sadness. You have them come in there, and you know it. it, it figures out a way to get those things in order and tell the story, you know, incorporates inside out into the imagination pavilion while keeping figment uh, a part of the storyline, even thinking like in the queue, I would love to go back and it's, it's tells the story of how figment was created. So many people don't even remember the original attraction. Like you, you said earlier, you know, anybody who experienced the original, we all evidently, you know, Obviously, it, it it resonates with all of us, and so we remember remember those scenes of uh, the Dreamfinder creating Figment and and, and uh, how magical that moment was. Is there a way that we not physically through that original way it was done in the the first attraction, but through you know pictures on walls, digital screens, kind of retell that whole story that leads along to throughout the queue to get you to the point that obviously Figment is this crazy creative character that has this problem going on it kind of introduces the characters that we're about to see on the attraction and uh also incorporates some of the inside out characters that we'll see as well going in but i don't know if that makes any sense to you guys that i uh, laid it out there but it was i i think there's a way i love the credit scene on inside out and and the way that all the emotions uh, in that movie mimic the person that they're inside that head. And I think it's a cool way that you could keep figment in there. You can have different versions of the figment character show up in the attraction, but uh, mix in the storyline without and have inside out being a part of it without it just being a straight retelling of Riley's journey and uh, you know, seeing bing bong and things like that, that you would uh, typically see on a basic IP attraction. This is going to be a roundabout way of complimenting you, and I'm not even trying to make a backhanded compliment. Um, well, let me start out by saying it sucks. No, uh, uh, this is where I'm <laughs> going to... It, it does, I know, I know. I, no, no, here, here's what I'm going to say. Uh, generally, when you, see, when you see fans introducing an idea, like an intellectual property tie-in, there's not it's, not... it's not thought out to the extent that Josh thought out his or Ben thought out his. And it's just put inside out in the imagination pavilion and that's it. There's no, there's no story conceit for it, etc. cetera. Uh, when that idea is presented in general, I've said it doesn't belong there. It is a better fit in a cranium command type replacement. Uh, having said that, I really like the, the idea that you had there where you're, you're bringing the two together. Not that I'm the one that needs to validate these ideas by any means, but um, making it so that, you use those characters and the version of those characters that does make sense for the imagination pavilion. I think what people expected for a inside out attraction in the imagination pavilion is imagination land. And I don't think that really fits there. No, it's, it's a, it's a different way, I guess, of getting to um, the dream port, but uh, I, I like your approach better than what I've seen other people pitched uh, for it. And considering that wonders of life is really no more and inside out is basically an alternative version of cranium command. I didn't really want to see them do the same thing anyway. Um, to your point of like retelling the prior version, the original version of the attraction, why not? Okay. 
forgo the turntable that was like that three minute setup, but you could still have that be a pre-show and you're just standing there and watching it. And then from there it springs off into the new story, but that at least gives you the backstory of Figment's creation. And then, you know, 35 years later, he's evolved into uh, somebody that's now independent of the dream finder, but his imagination is running wild and he needs to understand how his imagination works and play on the various emotions that are tied into his imagination. And yeah, that's your that, ride. Yeah. I think it's just utilizing that queue area. That's once you're inside the building, there's a large area from those doors back to the oh, actual yeah. load. Yeah. Uh, that's the thought is in, in, in that large room right now where it has the large Robin Williams picture, you know, that, that's a, that's a big, big room. And that's the thought of that's a great plot. If, if it's actually like a pre-show that you, like you say there, but that's the that's the retelling of who this character is for those who don't remember the original attraction. Uh, it's also a way to get Dreamfinder back in there. That would be part of a uh, you know maybe a post show photo op yeah. opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, but I, I I definitely think there's so much space between the, the that entry door and the load that you can tell a great story before you actually ever get in the cars and get on the attraction to yeah. figure out and solve the problem. I don't. Do you guys remember the the original load area there that was in the first? I mean, it was one giant room. It was a giant room with a bunch of switchbacks. Yeah. Yep. And it was it was huge, and it just had such a grand scale, and it had like all clouds painted on the wall. I mean, it was very very uh, impressive. You couldn't walk into there. I I forget what the word is. It uh, megalophobia. Like when you walk into a giant space and you're just like overwhelmed by it. Like it was almost like that. It was just. It it was very imposing. Fear of women named Megan. I damn it! I thought that was right. I knew it when it came out of my mouth. <laughs> um, and and uh, I, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I, I think I, I have to admit I haven't seen Inside Out, so I lack a little bit of basis to to appreciate your idea in total. But one thing you said that did connect with me is just explaining the origin of Figment to new guests is really important yeah. because first throughout so much of Epcot now we have these characters that have been thrust in because people like these characters and they've been shoehorned in. And then you've got Figment, which is a character. So in case you were not paying attention, that is IP. But yep. there's no explanation for it. There's no backstory. It's just like he's there. Nobody knows who he is. You know, idiots like us who are on Disney podcasts do. But if you're 14 or 15 years old and you're going to a, to Epcot for the first time right now, you, you don't know who Figment is. I just, no. you know, so it seems like if you're going to keep that IP in there, at least give it some service by giving it some background and context. So one of my biggest objections with the current version of imagination uh, is that Figment is like a cracked out version of his former self. And don't get me wrong. The original character was also hyperactive as well, but um, there's a line in the original attraction where Dreamfinder says he throws in a dash of childish delight. Josh, mm-hmm. you've used the word uh, charming to describe certain things in Disney's past. And that's where I think that the original Figment had that charm that was brought back where, all right, yes, he's, he's wild, but he's kind of ignorant and uh, childlike in that. Whereas the current version is a know-it-all and right. hasn't, hasn't been, you know, brought in by any level of restriction or even ignorance. Uh, it, he just knows everything. And the, the version that, that Ben framed seemingly ties it back a little bit, whereas somewhere in between those two, where, all right, he's evolved from the original attraction, but still recognizes, say, that, all right, his imagination ha- is out of control, and what do we need to do to uh, 
to to bring it in on a different level. They were looking at the various senses in the current version, but perhaps now we look at emotions instead and tie it back to uh, Inside Out that way. And I think another thing that's maybe worth noting, I, I don't know how it ties into this idea, is that th- the way that I always perceived the original iteration was that Figment, the reason that Figment and Dreamfinder worked well together is that Figment was Dreamfinder's imagination. Like yeah, those yeah. two things went, he was older and perhaps wiser and mature and figment had this childlike wonder and it was the complement you know the the composition of the two of them that allowed them to do uh all of the things that they did so it's it makes a little less sense when you disembody the imagination from the person who was doing the imagining so that's kind of where we're at now is you have the figment imagination i guess it's yours as the writer i guess the way snow white ride was but no one got that either so Perhaps there's a parallel can be drawn. So Josh, I know you haven't seen the movie. Uh, Riley is the female character who the, um, the various emotions inhabit her brain. Okay. And she has an imaginary uh, friend named Bing Bong. There's like some pink elephant type creature that goes off to imagination land, but there's, a, there's parallels there where Riley is the dream finder in this scenario. And Bing Bong is figment in this scenario. Okay. Um, perhaps even that parallel can be drawn in uh, Ben's version of the attraction yep. um, where you can integrate both classic Epcot, classic characters, classic IP that Disney has created with something that's a little bit more modern. And I, I also, you know, thinking back on the classic attraction, I, I love her. I always love the, uh, the kind of wonder that figment always brought to each scene and then Dreamfinder explaining what that, wonder is and what 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 those things that he's experiencing are so and my thought on this attraction is it's not figment himself it's figment's emotions wondering what the heck's going on and it's the you know the characters from inside out that we're familiar with explaining the same way Dreamfinder explained Mm -hmm. why why is he afraid of this why why is he sad at this and uh you know kind of bringing back some of that i won't call it educational but kind of that mentoring back to the attraction that's uh, definitely missing now. I think that, I mean, vulnerability is something that we all have, whether we admit it or not. And I think Mm -hmm. characters that when you or when you find an endearing character that has some of the same weaknesses and foibles that you do, that people naturally gravitate towards that because it makes them feel okay with themselves because they like thing. They like someone who has the same things that they might want to change about themselves. So that's, that to me is a natural way to get people to, to gravitate toward a character. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing that takes us over the top that will definitely get it made one day is, uh, <laughs> you know, th- th- they always talk about the, uh, the, the, the cells that uh, figment brings to the park, or at least Jim Hill always talks about, you know, how much <laughs> money they make off the figment character. And that's why they've been reluctant to le- you know, remove them from the park. Well, right now, figment, is purple. He's one color. My version of the attraction, there's five more different versions of figment. <laughs> wow. So there's six different ver- plush versions of figment you can sell in the shop afterwards. That's just money in the bank right there. So the green, light uh, just, the green light just got lit up. It did. It certainly did. What I like when Jim makes those pitches is that they sell $100,000 in figment <laughs> merchandise each year. Meanwhile, they're spending $400 million on the Guardians of the Galaxy. Attraction. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> The scale of what the decisions are are not necessarily all there. If that's the uh, if those numbers are at all close to true, have you guys seen that building that they're building? 
Uh, no, no, you can't see no, you, it. It blurs into the sky. That you both have to tab you both. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Punchline stealing <laughs> bastards. <laughs> I'm excited to not see it next week. <laughs> so, uh, Ben, you you mentioned vehicles in this. Had you put uh, much thought into into the the vehicles themselves? I, I don't know it, how. Yeah, right. Be. I mean, I I actually don't it's think a that. DeLorean. That's exactly it. Uh, I'm really thinking uh, layout and everything kind of stays similar to how it is right now. I don't think there needs to be a whole lot of gutting out. I think uh, there's plenty of space to tell the story uh, along the track as it currently lays out. Plus, I think it has a better chance of actually ever happening uh, without a without a full gut of the building and just doing a overlay. But this is a uh, I think it's better than just your typical. you know, throwing frozen in Malstorm and, and trying to get away with it. I, I do think the way the track is laid out right now that I have no problems with the way the ride functions currently. I have problems with the story and uh, what we see along the way, but uh, a better version of how it's laid out right now, I would have no problem with. Okay. Works I, for me. Individually, I have problems with the fact that the ride is much shorter than it used to be and that it's much worse than it used to be. But when you <laughs> add those two things together, they cancel each other out. So I guess it's okay. Yep. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, Josh, did you have any more thoughts on uh, on Ben's idea? I am all out of thoughts. Fair enough. I think you should see Inside Out. Uh, I don't know how big a fan you are of Pixar movies, but from a property that makes some sense for Epcot, uh, it's at least worth seeing in that respect. I'll check it out. Um, so I'll uh, I'll bring up the rear here. Uh, my <laughs> insert joke. Yes. My, my pitch was for a, uh, for a Wally based attraction. And I, I made some notes to kind of like argue against myself here. Wally is a dystopian view of the future, which in itself doesn't really fit into Epcot. Um, but I also look at it as Epcot is intended to solve problems of the past, present and future. And, really what I'm looking for here is not even necessarily characters from the movie. There are two prominent characters in the movie, but uh, I want those uh, uh, fat bastard transport pods in Epcot. And I think it is more um, going to be inspired by Wally, but it's more the aesthetic of it, the kinetic energy going into Epcot. Um, I love when you've got in Tomorrowland, you've got a people mover moving around, and I'd love to see something similar in Epcot. But in this case, I'm not looking for a uh, traditional people mover or even an Autopia, but um, an elevated trackless system that uh, is those transport pods that move around Future World. So uh, it would be a, admittedly a loose tie to Wally, but certainly anybody that's seen the movie would recognize them, and it would it would move guests from one side of future world to the other there'd be boarding at the current interventions east and west areas uh probably be the most expensive sea ticket in history of uh disney (laughs) theme parks but um one of the things that i fell in love with if you guys didn't know i went to japan a few years ago uh tell us tell us more was aquatopia it was a pretty simple attraction from an aesthetic standpoint but um i liked the unpredictable uh, motion of those trackless vehicles and in this case doing so in a much more visual medium where it could go along rooftops of Epcot uh, and make it feel like those futuristic uh, pods and WALL-E um, is really what the appeal was for me so 
story-wise, admittedly not uh, not great, but still a futuristic transport that would at least lend to the kinetic energy of Future World. Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, I'm a sucker for, I mean, anyone who's listening to me on any show knows, like the transportation system thing is an easy way to get to my heart quick. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you have to have these sort of, I, I mean, getting the, that's infrastructure. You do have to have a way to move people. Um, and I think that could be vastly improved at Epcot. So that that contributes something regardless of how thin the story veil might be. Um, and, it, and it does have a tie-in. So I, I would I would be all for that in a heartbeat. And I did see that movie and I thought it was really <laughs> great. So I, I like it, but I think we might need bio-reconstruct to take some aerials at Epcot to <laughs> see how hideous some of the backstage areas are that uh, might be visible from your elevated view uh, going along the rooftops of uh, uh, uh Buildings. Well, hey, so <laughs> if we give them incentive to clean that shit up, that's a twofer. <laughs> well, considering they're doing such a bad job of cleaning bathrooms right now, I don't know how uh, good a job they're doing cleaning that's, that's uh, a fair backstage. Point. So, uh, <laughs> if they're demoing interventions east and west, um, which hasn't been confirmed, although the one piece of sketchy uh, concept art that we got at D23 Expo. Um, the Rorschach test. Yeah, the Rorschach test of concept art, uh, I believe, showed both the Interventions East and West um, buildings being at least partially demolished. Uh, if you rebuild some sort of aesthetic, and it doesn't even necessarily need to be you know, that same shape, but some elevated pathway where you're not just going on a straight line or even a, uh, a pre-designated path like a people mover, I think adds to that kinetic motion. And maybe there's a larger area um on one side and the other where there's a little bit more of uh you know just like an amorphous blob where they can kind of move around uh that area and have the crisscrossing of the park be a little bit more linear but that's that was kind of my thought process where these um uh these transport pods in Wally did seem to be kind of on like a conveyor belt if i remember correctly uh this wouldn't necessarily be on a conveyor belt because we have the technology now where it doesn't necessarily have to be and it can make it look like it is going to a designated des- uh, destination yeah. I, f- I feel like there's a tie in here to the uh ai equipped version of my magic plus which is that imagine if uh part of the incentive is hey you can hop on one of these pods and it will take you directly to the yeah. attraction that benefits disney by balancing out the load it benefits the guests by giving them a closer to being a walk-on experience. Um, you know, so it's one thing to depend on guests to move to where they need to go, but keep in mind how many people you hear about on the monorail talking about how they're going to ride the Harry Potter attraction at Magic yeah. Kingdom, and you realize that you know you can't depend on guests being experts at going to where they need to be. So the the more of a streamlined, automatic, uh, you know, movement system you can have in place to put them where they need to be, the the more success you'll have at moving people to where you want them. Or the pods could just drop you off at the nearest by and large that they'll put throughout the parks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Switch uh, mouse gear over to by and large. And <laughs> everyone wears fat suits. <laughs> I'm wearing mine right now. <laughs> I, I, need, I, need, I need it during food and wine. <laughs> So that was my pitch. I, th- I don't know that uh, what I'm throwing out there is uh, as major an attraction as what uh, Ben and Josh came up with. But I think this is where there are ideas for Epcot that do satisfy the intellectual property requirement, the mandate that's coming from above, that still do work within the construct of that park. And 
I, I just hope that they're looking at these sorts of things. Um, I hope that there's a treatment of Guardians of the Galaxy that makes sense for that. I hope that there's a direction for that park in the future. Um, I'd like Me to too. think that there are people internally talking about things like we're talking about them here. And if I mean, not, I, they better start. I can tell you that I, I have a friend who's an Imagineer, uh, an acquaintance really, but a, a person that I like. I won't even re- reveal their gender to protect them. And I can say that they are one of us. They love what we love. They, they're frustrated by what we're frustrated by. And overwhelmingly, the message I get from them is that it's a constant forehead being banged against the table situation because they have really great ideas that they just can't get the funding to And uh, however frustrating it is to us, I can only imagine it's a multiple of that for them. When you're delegated a task of create an attraction around this that fits into this building and you have $7 to do it. It's hard to be passionate about it. Yeah. And when you come up with, with something out of whole cloth or something that you think fits the area and you weren't assigned to come up with something that necessarily fits the area or, or you're at least working from that mindset or say, say the mandate from above um, was simply, we need to come up with a concept that makes future world futuristic again. Say, say that was the mandate. We need to use characters, but that's the only restriction that you have. That gives a much bigger blank slate for uh, Imagineers to work with. Yeah. And that's what we kind of want here. We want those, uh, those blank pieces of paper to be there where we don't have the punch list of everything that needs to be satisfied. Any movie that makes $200 million needs to get an attraction that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily fit into the parks. Not all movies are fodder for theme park attractions. Right. Yeah. I I almost feel, sorry. I was going to say, I, I, that's, that's really the angle that I kind of took with my idea of, uh, I, I don't mind the characters having to be added to something or, or used in a certain way. Just don't rehash what we've already got on Blu-ray and uh, can stream on Netflix. Figure out a nice original way, find a story that makes sense, and work it all together. So I don't want to uh, give us another homework assignment yet, and I'm sure we'll probably come up with something as we talk privately, but uh, we discussed this back in episode three, the the conceit of can, can they make this work? Can they find a way to have a direction of Epcot? Um, I think something that we even may have suggested on there was like a Disney sea type backstory that connected the future world pavilions. Um, perhaps even extending the Marvel universe to include uh, some characters that would, that could be called explorers and uh, you could call the guardians adventurers or uh, dreamers or some, some variation of that and make them honorary members of a sea equivalent backstory. And uh, Ben, I think you were the biggest sea uh, fan amongst us um, with the adventurers club. But oh, yeah. trying to come up with some sort of cohesive way to tie everything together. Uh, I think one of the problems that Epcot Center had, uh, especially when you fast forward 35 to 40 years, when the need for character integration is is very apparent, is that it didn't necessarily lend itself uh, as easily as some of the other constructs. Like Magic Kingdom, you had lands where some things can just be plopped into it, you know, Indiana Jones adventure makes sense for an adventure land out in Disneyland. Um, Epcot doesn't lend itself to that as well, but there are still angles as we showed during this show that they can take, but perhaps coming up with a concept that works 
for Future World, a concept that works for World Showcase that isn't just turning it into Tomorrowland and Fantasyland. Um, I mean, that's, that's, that is, in a lot of ways, what you just said described the genius of Walt Disney when he conceived of Disneyland and Magic Kingdom is that they are like, they're the department store of theme parks. You know, there's ladies' lingerie and sporting goods and menswear and children's departments. Like, you know, there's a department for everything so that if you have any good idea, it's just a matter of figuring out which place to put it, but there's a place for it. You know, Epcot has two departments. It's like sporting goods and ladies' lingerie. And yeah. if, you, if you've if you got, you know, something that doesn't fit into one of those two buckets, it either can't go there or it's going to be shoehorned in or it's going to disrupt the continuity of the department that you're putting it in. So um, in, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, again, I, I sound like a broken record, I know, but uh, <laughs> part of the brilliance of Epcot, I think, was that it had this sort of discrete message, you know, these two lands that they they had a similar overarching theme, but they were different in their approach, um, you know, and that's what made it unique and differentiated. I mean, it was the only place in the world that you could go to have that sort of experience. Uh, and that's great if you were a guest back then. But if you were a management who just wants to capitalize on whatever the hot thing is, then Epcot is a, is a bane to your existence because it simply doesn't offer that flexibility to receive whatever you want to shove in there. It's it. Do y'all find it interesting that we all touched on future world attractions though, where mm-hmm. like world showcase does in a way lend itself to make IPs fit much easier than, uh, the area that we, we focused in on. I got to admit to you, uh, you know, I, I, one of my favorite things to do, uh, back when I worked in the parks, I loved going to see the British revolution over in, uh, <laughs> UK pavilion in you know, the, uh, the current act that they have over there, not not like the old Beatles one, but I still enjoy going to get my snake bite over at the uh, Rosen Crown and walking over and hearing a show. Uh, and then the rumors started peeking up of uh, a Mary Poppins attraction going yep. in back there yep. and uh, wiping out the gazebo and and uh, wiping out the Rose Garden and, and putting a well, I think it was a carousel was was, was talked about. But I, I have to admit that after seeing Mary Poppins returns and seeing the set pieces that they used. Uh, and, and I really enjoyed that movie. I don't know if either one of you guys have seen that yet, but, uh, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the film. Part of me was like, man, I wouldn't mind seeing cherry tree lane back here. Uh, but not for a a simple carousel attraction. I think, uh, something like a Mary Poppins could, it could be a a definitive e-ticket attraction. There's so many visuals between the two films that you could retell that story and actually do it in a very cool, thrilling, family friendly way, uh, that, it seems like it would fit back there very easily and, and make a lot of sense. I'll give you D. <laughs> I think E.T. <laughs> Mary Poppins would be a, would be a tough pull. So, have, you, have either one of you seen it? I did, yeah. Um, uh, oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, the, the final scene with the, with the balloons, the flying. Uh, right, so. I, I, thought, I thought there was an aspect of like even... We've seen the the uh, the patent on the Spider-Man swinging attraction that sure. I I almost went like why can't you do that with the balloons that we there see is- at the end of the movie and it's like the uh, the modern newer version of the flying over London that we see on Peter Pan that everybody still talks about still waits way too long for that attraction. Tim loves that part. That's Tim's <laughs> highlight of his trip. Well, the original the original Land Pavilion was supposed to have a balloon based uh, yeah element to it. Yeah, I mean, not. Yeah. Not helium, you know, hot air balloons rather than balloon balloons, but but nonetheless, it does seem like that's, you know, they say ideas and imagineering never die. So uh, there there is some folder somewhere that contains some nugget of what you described. 
So yeah. uh, I'm going to touch on what Josh said uh, after this, but to, to Ben's point about a Mary Poppins attraction, I like the idea of a Mary Poppins attraction. I like the idea of Cherry Tree Lane in Epcot. And I think that in itself makes sense because you have an aesthetic there that fits in with the rest of that building. There are parts that, that already look like that. I What I have a problem with, and again, there's, I'm sure, a story treatment for Mary Poppins that would make sense for Epcot. But it, to me, it feels much more at home in Fantasyland. Um, and that would be my objection yeah. to it. Well, um, and, and the way Hollywood Studios is going, it makes a lot more sense, you know, figuring out something over there. If you're really just reliving the movies and retelling the movies and, and experience the movies, yeah. you know, you could do something over there. That's I, I had that same. That's why I didn't necessarily go with that as my right. main idea here. But uh, it does. It, it, it Like you said, the, the buildings and everything look very similar. Something about like the the attraction, like getting in the queue, going through the front door of their house, and the queue winding through their house before you ever get on the ride. Uh, there's something there that I think would just be very, very cool, and it would make sense in the grand scheme of things in World Showcase, even though it does make w- better sense in other parks. What I could see um, as a way, and I, I again, I, I'm not an Imagineer. We're we're playing them on TV here, but. Uh, a way to integrate those Fantasyland stories into World Showcase is to strip out the Disney version of it, or at least have, uh, let's say you're you're telling uh, Pinocchio and you're putting it in the Germany Pavilion. Uh, you're looking at a more traditional version of Pinocchio, and perhaps it evolves into the Disney movie, or or you show how it was inspired by it. Um, mm-hmm. I think that would be the way where that's not far off from Maelstrom where you're talking about trolls and uh, mm-hmm. looking at stories uh, and mythology of a particular, a particular country. Um, that's where I would object to a Mary Poppins attraction where yes, it's obviously set in England, but setting isn't necessarily the, the reason to put something in it. I think uh, we've discussed this before. Coco makes all the sense in the world because it is about uh, Mexican tradition more than just the story itself. That's a, a slam dunk fit. And I think we said that we wouldn't use that one for that reason, that it just made too much sense. And we were trying to kind of think a little bit beyond that. Um, I'm sure that there's a version of Mary Poppins attraction that would work in Epcot. Um, I've, I rewatched the original Mary Poppins. I saw Mary Poppins returns. Um, but I, I don't know enough about, uh, uh, the books and there's probably something in there, an angle that can be taken that would work. Um, you both saw saving Mr. Banks. I assume, right? Yes. yes. I thought that was pretty strong. Loved it. Um, but yeah, to your point about world showcase though, I think world showcase is tougher. Uh, and I don't know what the long term solution is for world showcase i think in all likelihood best case scenarios we're going to look at ratatouille type editions where all right there's kind of a cultural tie here with france france's uh culinary uh, uh motivations but um to to josh's uh point about the original concepts of the land i'm going back to future world now uh perhaps a unifying theme are those characters that they create for the park characters like Dreamfinder. There was a character called Landkeeper uh, in the original concept that Josh was referencing. Um, there was the timekeeper character over in Tomorrowland that could conceivably work again in future world. Although without Robin Williams being alive, I'd uh, kind of frown on bringing that back with a different voice. 
But those are the types of things where perhaps you come up with a similar concept character for each pavilion that is unique to Epcot. And yeah, maybe you integrate uh, movie-based IPs along with it, but you still have that unifying uh, idea of a character created for the park to help tell the story with other characters. Um, see, I don't really see World Showcase as being in need of anything, to be honest. I mean, to me, the if you want to expand World Showcase, you add additional countries. Um, I, I, if, if that's supposed to be a relatively realistic portrayal of the heritage and culture of a country, then it should be informed by the heritage and culture of the countries that are there. Um, whereas Future World, to me, is an entirely different, more dynamic thing that needs to constantly be evolving. Um, you know, but if you look at China, for example, it it focuses on ancient China. Well, ancient yeah. China hasn't changed since 1982, so there's not a compelling reason uh, to gut it and start over. But if you're if you're dealing with a future world pavilion that's about communication, communication has changed completely since 1982, so that has to change. So to right. me, you know, it's 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 about triage to some degree. You have to pick what you're going to direct your limited resources toward if you're running a theme park. And if you've got a theme park that is half about ancient things and half about uh, contemporary and future things, it's relatively obvious where the iteration needs to happen. And and that's why I tried to find a way to tell a story that was in future world. Because to me, um, you know, adding a significant improvement to World Showcase is a waste if people have to walk through a dilapidated future world in order to get there. Yeah, and I guess I I guess my you know take on what with the Mary Poppins deal, uh, you know I, I think the thing that set me off the most was like the rumor of a carousel, mm-hmm. and them them just throwing hey Mary Poppins had a carousel in it let's make it a Mary Poppins carousel I think it's a waste of an IP yeah, altogether. That's lame sauce. Yeah, you know if you want to put a carousel back there, that's fine. Explore England, explore explore the UK, and yeah. find a classic carousel that are in some of these parks that have been around for a hundred years and mimic that, recreate that. If you're going to do Mary Poppins, I guess my take on a E or as Josh said, D ticket attraction is <laughs> just have the balls to go all out if you're going to do it. Do yeah. do like do like the Ratatouille deal where if you're going to put something in France. Let's make another street, put a huge show building, and let's put the freaking Ratatouille attraction back there. If you're going to do Mary Poppins, go all out. Don't just put a carousel back there and go, uh, let's let's paint a few of the horses that look like they did in the first movie and uh, throw her name on it and and just get a cheap emotional pull for people to come back here and ride that. That's a waste. Uh, putting a carousel in there is like dropping Primeval World into Animal uh, Kingdom. <laughs> it's it's like, I mean, if you ever play like Roller Coaster Tycoon or anything, it's a difference between like painstakingly constructing a coaster one piece of track at a time and carving out the terrain and, and all of yep. that versus like dragging and dropping an attraction on there. And be like, I have one more attraction now, so my guests are happier. <laughs> like, it's just, you know, I, you ex- we Disney should be proud of the fact that they have earned a reputation for creating artisanal, handcrafted, carefully thought out attractions. So it really is sort of a slap in the nuts when they drop in some off the shelf crazy mouse coaster or a carousel, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's the, the same sentiment rings true with Utopia. You know, it's just, it's like, or sorry, the Speedway. Um, it just, it isn't up to the caliber that people expect from Disney. And it's one thing to say, maybe we're being jerks for, for being so critical of this quote unquote coming of age attraction. But on the other hand, it's like, no, we are giving Disney the props uh, as being capable of doing much more. It's like when you're in school and you, you know, you phone in an assignment that you 
goes, I expected better from you. You know, it's yeah. a, it's a compliment that's wrapped in, you know, it's an insult wrapped in faint praise. Um, but you know, the fact is that Disney does have the resources and the talent to produce world-class attractions. And when they do anything less than that, they deserve to be criticized for it. And if we don't, uh, then they will, then the quality will go down. Yep. Agreed. So I, I said that a Mary Poppins attraction, I don't really feel like it fits in Epcot. There are Mary Poppins attractions that have seen the light of day, at least from a concept standpoint. One of them was a Tony Baxter pitch. And another one that I do think could conceivably work with a few alterations was, I believe, pitched by Imagineer Mitch, who uh, made the rounds in WW Fanboys and a couple of other podcasts back in the day. And that idea was it did start as a carousel, but that carousel turned into a dark ride. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, now you're talking. Build me that. That that sounded like an incredible idea. Yep. Where you where the horses like up. roll off of it and go into exactly, a, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fantastic. That's a great idea. And a door opens up, and that kind of satisfies the Mary Poppins magic uh, that takes place in that movie, be it a spinning dish or what have you, that generates that magic. And perhaps you go into a uh, British countryside, and maybe it's animated, maybe it's real life, but you're seeing. Uh, you're seeing almost soaring over uh, uh, England, but going through physical sets on the back of a carousel horse. And then it comes back and you return to a carousel again. Um, I don't know operationally how that would possibly work, but uh, the concept of it seemed like a great, unique idea and a way to say, all right, let's get Mary Poppins in here and also satisfy the need for a culturally relevant United Kingdom attraction as well. Yep. So, and you said something important there, the physical sets that you would take on going back to my inside out. That's full of audio animatronics, by the way, no video <laughs> screens, no nothing. This is old school Epcot with a lot of characters, a lot of physical sets. Uh, and, and I think, you know, exactly what you said with the Mary Poppins. That's, that's the way to do it. That would be so cool. Yeah. I'm okay with some screens. I, I think that it's uh, a little bit like seasoning. You know, it's it's uh, about putting the right amount in. I, How do you I, feel I about screens on Navi River Journey? I haven't ridden it. Okay. Whoa. I know. I'm Whoa. losing my cred quickly wow. here. But. Personally, I think it works well, and I think that's kind of the the way to use it, where you integrate it in with sets. I wish there was a little bit more moving parts in it, and it was more than the short sea ticket that it is. But um, yeah, it, you I know, though, I can blend them. I do think it works though because of the payoff you have at the very end as well though. Yeah. If that if that AA was a screen or or an animation and the whole thing was just covered in screens and and done that way, I don't think you'd be nearly as impressed. But having that amazing AA at the very end, I can deal with all the screens that I see throughout. And and again, they're done very very well. Uh, it's uh, it's on another level that you've seen them from anything else. So, uh. But yeah, I think if if especially I, I've never seen the AA down where they do have the animated screen version of it. I have seen it. Okay, how, how what is what is that so <laughs> version? I'll, like? t- I'll tell you though. So I I noticed it immediately because I was looking for it. Um, my mother didn't notice the difference, and it is dark enough in there where if you're you know look looking at other things other than that animatronic in the final scene, I guess you can miss it, or she's just not paying attention. But uh, she didn't recognize that the animatronic wasn't there. She said, no, it was there. That was a screen, mom. But, um, well, that's a good job. It's, it's a better job than the Yeti. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, but there, there is, there is value to screens. I, I get that. And if you yep. look at say the, um, uh, my mind is going blank, but the, uh, the trackless ride in Hong Kong, um, uh, Phantom Manor. Phantom Manor. Yeah. Uh, No, no, no. no. Mystic Manor. Yeah. Yeah. They, they have a kind of like a windblown finale where screens fall away. And it really is just an amazing finale where you, you end up being revealed basically back where you started. Spoiler alert for those that haven't ridden the attraction yet. Um, I feel like we're going to, I feel like we're going to see a lot of that on uh, uh, the, the new Mickey Mouse ride as well. It's very possible. Um, yeah, I think I think screens augmenting physical props is is pretty clearly the obvious way to do it. But Josh, you talked about this in general. Like, find the best medium to tell the story, and yep. if screens are the best medium for the entire ride or for part of the ride, then that's what you use. Right. Um, where we object to them is when that's the only thing that they're doing, or it's a crutch when a physical uh figure could have been used but anyway yeah there's there's an old adage and i I honestly can't tell you if this is true but i've heard it from multiple sources that when the movie camera was first invented the way that it was put into use initially was to film plays that were acted out on a stage it it was only and, and it was like a big deal like people were excited to film these plays with this new technology it was it took a long time for artists to realize that this new tool offered them creative choices that they didn't have before. And that's when the idea of the cinema evolved. So I think we see that today. You know, when, when screens really started to become popular, people in Imagineering and, and creative outlets or creative venues, whether it's Universal, Disney, whatever, they were excited about this new technology. So by natural, you know, just the force of nature, they overused it because that was the yeah. new hotness. Uh, and hopefully that has waned now to the point where it just becomes another tool in their palette that they can use appropriately. And I, I think we're seeing that. I, I think I think the era of completely screen-based attractions is probably mostly in the rearview. Unless you're ten minutes down the road from Disney. <laughs> I don't know. I I, I think you got to give uh, whatever their creative department is. Certainly they've they've done a lot of very heavily uh, screen-based attractions, but. Um, I, I think they're going to figure it out as well. They've certainly done enough quality work to where I think they deserve the benefit of the doubt until they've proven that they don't. No, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. So since we're discussing physical props, perhaps now is as good a time as any to uh, discuss the uh, uh, animatronic in the room or not in the room anymore, <laughs> as the case may be, uh, a Buzzy. And I know over at the, uh, I guess, Kingdom Cast is what you guys uh, put yeah. out there as. Um, you guys talked pretty extensively about this. Uh, Josh, why don't you bring us up to speed on uh, our uh, favorite Cranium Command character? Sure. So so the Cliff's Notes are, uh, back in October, uh, on a podcast known as uh, Progress City Radio, which I guess now is once again the, the WWE Kingdom Cast. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I was so con- I was so confused trying to find this episode. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that's on the story for another day. <laughs> the branding wizards over here <laughs> have some have some work to do. Uh, but nonetheless, we we were reached out to by a guy, a guy who was posting very prolifically on Twitter, who identified himself as Backdoor Disney, uh, and he was posting videos of um, the the show building for uh, the Great Movie Ride, um, a, a bunch of other stuff, and he reached out to us and said, hey. Do you want to, can I come on your podcast? Uh, so Gary Hall and I said, yeah, sure. Why not? And he came on and 
both on and off the air, he indicated to us that he was uh, regularly going backstage. Uh, he mentioned Cranium Command and Wonders of Life specifically. Uh, he mentioned some other things, such as knowing that there was uh, a plan afoot uh, to steal the Buzzy animatronic in order to sell it to some people that had expressed interest. And, you know, we had him on mainly because I thought it was entertaining. I mean, it was probably, in my mind, 2% newsworthy and 98% entertaining because, as anyone who's been involved in this community for any amount of time knows, people talk, you know. Mm-hmm. And nine times out of 10, when people run their mouth, they're full of shit, quite frankly. <laughs> and, and we didn't really know um but we had him on the show and he said his piece it's available for download if you want to hear what he said but the in- where things got very interesting now here's here's where it gets interesting um about a month and a half after he came on the show sure enough news started hitting that clothing from buzzy had been stolen and then about a week and a half later the news evolved to the whole buzzy animatronic being stolen so as you can imagine, since we had talked to this kid, uh, we didn't have to be Columbo in order to put two and two together and to wonder if perhaps he was involved in it. Um, the individual at issue identified himself to me uh, as being named Patrick. And the arrest, or one arrest report at least, involved in the story uh, lists a guy named Patrick Spikes. Uh, we initially had a redacted version of that police report that said that he was interestingly arrested for resisting arrest and there is an explanation for that that we don't need to get into um but we, there's a mitch hedberg joke there actually if you want to tell that <laughs> you, can't yeah. have, you can't have my cell phone <laughs> imagineer mitch hedberg yes um in any event he we ultimately got a unredacted version of that police report that said that there were search warrants issued for his residence uh and they alluded to the fact that he was perhaps a person of interest for the theft of the buzzy clothing at least that's what I took. So at present, I, I don't believe that there's any actual confirmation of an official capacity that the animatronic itself was stolen. Uh, but I have seen photos which which certainly seem to purport that the thing was taken and that all yeah. of the hydraulic, electrical, and other lines were basically like chopped with a saw. Um, so, it, so it seems as though it's gone. And that's, that's basically where we're at. There is another... Um let's call him a road scholar uh, that is also posting backstage videos. Uh, most recently uh, one of big thunder mountain. Oh yes. He, he was over in cranium command had video of him uh, going to the lounge, the MetLife lounge, and then uh, going back the dumb. next day. Yeah. Going back <laughs> the next day. So I guess he was dumb. Um, and he got caught 100% of the times that he was yes, there yes, on yeah, video. Yeah. Um, I don't, I'll be honest, these things are entertaining to me, but I think these guys are idiots. They're they're yeah. absolutely idiots. Uh so I don't really want to advertise that much more of them, but Agreed. You can find stuff. Um I mean, I got drawn into this community by, you know, guys like Adam the Woo and mm-hmm. uh I almost said his real name. I didn't mean to. Uh, <laughs> let, let's call him Hooten Chief for, for those guys, um, as well as uh Leonard Kinsey, right? That's the right yep. name we're yep. allowed to use, yep. right? Yes, that's the correct <laughs> name. Okay. Um, you know, and I feel like they were motivated by a a real love for these attractions and an an interest in them, um, which I appreciate and related to. I I don't see that with these new kids. And and maybe that's just because I'm getting older and they're getting younger. But to me, it, you know, whippersnappers. I mean, you look at Hoot and Chief. These guys were not attention horse. I mean, they didn't even set the clock on their damn camcorder. You know, it's flashing 12 o'clock the whole time. There was no (laughs) Facebook back then. There was no Instagram. 
They were back there because they love this thing. And was it stupid? Yes. Should they not have done it? No, they shouldn't have. But I'm glad they did. You know, they they memorialized that if I mean, there are things about the most amazing attraction that I've ever ridden that the objectively verifiable fact is, if not for them, I never would have laid eyes on those things in my entire life. So mm-hmm. I am grateful for that. Um, I don't feel like these new this new wave of uh, you know backstage trespassers is doing anything to memorialize things that way. I feel like it's just about smashing that like button, and I yeah, it, it's, it, it makes me feel a little bit like a hypocrite because, like I said, I, I do have a affinity for the guys who did this back in the day, and I I simultaneously have disdain for these kids. So uh, if that makes me a hypocrite, then so be it. But and, and maybe I'm not doing a good job of articulating the difference between them, but it seems very different to me. Uh, like I talked about on the first time I was on with you guys uh, to get behind the scenes and backstage is why I went out and worked out there. And uh, anytime I had the chance to sneak into an attraction and go behind the scenes, even if it was just by myself, I did it. Uh, yeah. Thank God there was no uh, social media or anything to promote myself. It was just all for my own personal amusement and enjoyment. Right. And uh you know, as far as going like stealing Skippy and stuff, it's it's really crappy. Uh, <laughs> I do hope there's a movie made about this one day, though, because I would love to see how this was pulled off with. Uh, I, I think you guys talked about it on um, whichever podcast, whatever you're calling yourself these days. I uh, think it's again. Kingdom Cast. <laughs> King, the, yes, it, it was the Kingdom Cast version uh, of how, how big the audio animatronic itself actually is and the clothing and stuff like that. And like yeah. how elevated that stage is and how they had to cut mm-hmm. the wiring. Uh, this makes for a nice, like, you know, Ocean's Eleven type uh, film. One of these days, if Disney's smart, they'll buy the rights. Wait, they don't need to. They if it was that. moronic Ocean's Eleven, it'd be awesome. But like, how do, how do you get it out of that building? How do you sneak it out? There's a uh, part of me, like, I, I think you guys joke. Part of me would love to know that it was like snuck out in a uh, stroller. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like it was carried out. And I, I don't know, maybe this is. I guess my I'm coloring this with my own sort of frustration with the people who do this. I, I don't want to let any part of me look up to them in any way, but I feel like it was probably done in the least impressive way possible, which, yep. which on one hand is the least <laughs> impressive way possible. On the other hand is also the most brilliant way to do it. So uh, it's a, it's a mixed bag for me, you know, I, but at the end of the day, look, there's a huge difference between, you know why they invented the crime of trespassing? Because you're infringing on someone's rights without depriving them of the thing. You're not stealing it. You know, so it's a whole nother, it's so different from stealing that it has its own separate tort and its own separate crime. And to me, is it wrong to trespass? Yes. You're not allowed to be there. Person who owns that property has the right to exclude you. I get that. I respect that. I'm a freaking lawyer. I get it. But it's not stealing. They didn't deprive anyone of anything, really. Um, you know, but these guys who just decided to steal it, uh, that's just the lowest form of of the low and it's the opposite of caring and and loving these parks it's it's just taking it and the idea that it's defensible because disney wasn't using it or because they let this attraction rot is horseshit um and it's uh it i get really frustrated when i hear people that i know are well-intentioned fall into that trap because you got to think about it a little bit harder it's not your stuff you know leave it alone so are we are the three of us going to go in there and get the hypothalamus now no, we are not. I am going to have no part of that. I will immediately turn you over to the authorities if you engage in any of that nonsense. <laughs> yeah, as the as the attorney on our show, I'll let you, uh, you know, talk to me about you know my uh, statute of limitations. But I, I may or may not have a skipper costume in my closet. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm not all for stealing uh, 
attraction uh, characters I, I, and stuff look, like that. But, again, I'm I'm going to point out a distinction that probably doesn't have a difference. You know, when you're an employee and you on your last day of work, you happen to leave a uniform hanging in your closet. Is crap. that is that Whoops. different? Than you know, renting a minivan and driving onto property and <laughs> cutting an animatronic loose and putting you know, it seems different to me. I don't know how. I'm gonna list um, a CVS smock on eBay, see what I can get for it. <laughs> hey, when, when when I got to be a, a security guard for uh, Aerosmith during the grand opening of Rock and Roller Coaster, you better bet I kept my security shirt. <laughs> oh sure, I name drop my Bob Iger conversations. And- hey. When you had when I have when I have Steven Steven Tyler right on my chest, I mean he rubbed off on that shirt. I can't I can't give that back. We could definitely edit that into something dirty. I'm not even sure what you just said. I don't even think we need to edit it. I mean, I actually think it's. He said Steven Tyler rubbed off on his chest. That is what I heard. <laughs> You'd let him do it too. Yeah, yeah. Probably, right. Good woman. At least let Liv watch. Um, <laughs> I'm looking through my notes. Um, one other thing I just wanted to acknowledge here, only because we talked about uh, Joe Rody on uh, the last Epcot show and his role in the Guardians um, Guardians attraction that's going there. I guess he is no longer handling the Marvel portfolio. There was a post on the Disney Parks blog where an uh, Imagineer na- named Scott Drake uh, identified himself as the uh, the head of the Marvel portfolio. So um, I know nothing about Scott Drake, but it sounds like Joe Rody is not involved with Guardians of the Galaxy attraction. So. Um, for those of us that were optimistic based on his previous work, uh, we know nothing about Scott Drake. So who knows what to expect from that attraction? Hmm. If anybody knows anything about Scott Drake, by all means, share it with us. Cause I'd like to, uh, like to have a little bit more positive outlook that that's going to fit properly into. I actually heard back there. He was going to kidnap him. <laughs> <laughs> he stole it. That's actually what happened to Joe Rody. <laughs> Joe Rody's been sold for $50,000. <laughs> I wonder if, if, hydraulic back, if his back hydraulic door gear has been cut. Rody's got a hydraulic line up his ass right now. <laughs> <laughs> has anybody actually seen the Yeti lately? <laughs> I, said on, no I said on the show, as much as I don't concern stealing, if they could pull off getting that thing out of there, I'd be impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, uh, I've been backstage at Everest. Uh, I was evac'd off the ride. And um, I, I took what video I could w- without getting yelled at for the fifth time. Um, <laughs> But it really is, as soon as you get uh, outside of what is the themed area, you are in the middle of like a superstructure of a building. It really is totally unthemed in, in the other areas of it. And for people that are interested in that sort of thing, there are tours, not necessarily of Everest, mind you, but the Marceline to Magic Kingdom tour um, is a great one. And the uh, Keys to the Kingdom tour are great ones where if you do want to see those things in an authorized fashion, uh, yeah, that, that's the way to do it. I mean, that's that's what you want to do. And yeah, it's, Marceline to Magic Kingdom one, you get to go down to um, uh, uh, the Haunted Mansion and see the uh, uh, the dining room scene, the ballroom scene. It's really cool to see it. Yeah, it's cool. I, I've heard that the experience you get on all of those, and it makes total sense, depends tremendously on what tour guide you get. Um, you know, yeah, but that's I, true. I, I've talked to people that have had really, really good experiences with them. And for what it costs, I would absolutely, if you're, if you're hardcore enough into Disney to listen to this podcast, you probably ought to drop them. That would be my guess. Yeah. yeah. Or just go work for them. Like I did. That's a longer term way. If you want to do the long con, <laughs> go the long con baby, I'm going to save $200 great, by quitting my job and taking this <laughs> entry level position at Magic Kingdom. <laughs> Two 12 hour shifts and you can almost pay for a one day pass at the Magic Kingdom. <laughs> it's worth it. 
Yeah. <laughs> you get to walk on pirates. <laughs> and on that note, uh, <laughs> I think we're probably at about an hour and a half or so. So we should probably wrap it here. Um, if you have any quest- questions, which are like questions or topic <laughs> ideas, you can email us at martycalled at gmail.com. Uh, we swear we'll check that once every six months. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter under the username at Marty Called or join in on the discussions in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Marty Called. We'd also appreciate our listeners using our Amazon affiliates link over on martycalled.com. doesn't cost you anything, but helps fund the show with your purchases you're going to make anyway. So if you've got any uh, President's Day purchases coming up, by all means. Uh, President's Day purchases. <laughs> Amazon <laughs> affiliates. Um, ben, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me at Twitter at real skipper Ben. Uh, you can find my uh, column skipper Ben's top 10 in every issue of attractions magazine. And if you guys got like 50 more minutes, I have a great idea for a fast and furious Tokyo drift overlay for test track. If gonna... <laughs> Save that for the next show. Okay. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Gold Jerry. And uh, Josh, where can we find you online and or Twitter accounts that you want to plug that may or may not be you. Okay. So if you want to find me online, my, my, my merch, you can go to utilidors.com. It's spelled like utilidors, except incorrectly. There's two O's in it, so that's utilidors.com. Uh, and then if you want to look at a hopefully clever Twitter account that may or may not be mine, uh, you can check out at Buzzy Tracker, uh, which shows uh, Buzzy's new life as a liberated individual uh, exploring new things on Earth and beyond. You can also find Josh on Twitter at Backdoor Disney. You cannot. I don't appreciate this uh, nonsense being threatened to me. I don't need the FBI kicking my door down because you made some last minute joke on this podcast. You can find me on Bob Iger's friends list uh, at <laughs> WDW Theme Parks on Twitter, Facebook.com slash WDW Theme Parks, WDW Theme Parks.com slash rumors as well. You do know that blocked is not a synonym for friends. Right? <laughs> Same difference. Same difference. <laughs> Well, see you guys next month. Good night. Peace.